0: Hey everyone, welcome to something that I'm very excited about, Season 2 of Too Lazy to Read the Paper. And to kick things off, we have a great guest. It's Tina Rad. She's a professor of computer science at Northeastern University. She has many, many cool affiliations, like the Santa Fe Institute, Vermont Complex Systems Center, lots of affiliations around Boston, too. She has worked in cool places before. She does work in the intersection of data mining, machine learning, and network science. She has hundreds of papers. She has given many hundreds of talks and so many cool things on her CV. But I am going to just try and keep it super short today because I realize when listening to podcasts, this beginning part of the host just sitting there talking is super boring. If I'm listening to the podcast, I know who's on there that's why i want to hear the conversation so just to say tina's brilliant some cool awards recently i can bring up is that she was named one of the 100 brilliant women in ai ethics in 2021 she received northeastern university's excellence in research and creative activity that award she received in 2022 so she's super cool i think you will uh Experience that for yourself in the conversation. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Tina Rod. Enjoy. So, uh, but it it looks, you have a fantastic Zoom background. You have uh, the Pink Floyd prism. Is that right?
1: Yes, the dark side of the moon. That's what we're going through these days.
0: <laughs> yes, I
1: feel like I'm the dark side of the moon. So why not put the poster up as well?
0: Yes, but it it um but for you is it like a musical uh, reference or a or a kind of a prism reference or like what's the history if both. there is one? It's, yeah.
1: it's it's both really. It's actually my husband's poster. Uh, he's very much into music of all kinds. and so when the pandemic started i'm like oh i need some background here and so we weren't using his poster so i put it up and as you said there's so many different meanings to it so from the album cover to the prism itself to you know white light goes in and color comes out
0: (laughs) yes no 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 it's it's beautiful and it is it i mean i i was just today at a at a glass door where there was Um, you know, like the pain kind of narrowed in in like a little triangle, and there was Mm -hmm. a beautiful little rainbow, uh, uh, on on the side. And it is, it's magic every time, even though you know what's like. There's this famous, um, you know, like the like people say doesn't like I think it's Feynman who says it. Like maybe he talks about a rose, or I can't remember the anecdote, but basically his his point is when you understand the physics. It adds to the richness rather than detracts detr- from it. You still see the beauty. You still see, but then you you have this kind of depth underneath it.
1: Oh, absolutely! You know, whenever you learn something, it just makes you feel good. And every time you see it, you're like, "Oh, I know that thing. Yes. <laughs> I know how it works." So <laughs> it's it's lovely.
0: <laughs> yes, it's awesome. All right, thank you. <laughs> that's that's all the preamble. But then, yeah. th- but then we're going to get the podcast started for real now. So. I would like to welcome you, thank you for taking the time, and I'm going to jump straight into my secret plan with this podcast, is to add, ask weirdly personal questions of uh, people who are interesting, and is especially about their path into science, because it's kind of a hobby of mine, and I'm I'm always fascinated with how different people's reasons and motivations are so i'm going to kind of ask what's your background where do you come from um what 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 you know like um what were you like when you were 12 and did you know that you wanted to be a scientist or how did it all start
1: yes I did know that I wanted to do something with math because I was very good in math. And so my dad has a PhD in electrical engineering. He worked on autonomous vehicles, believe it or not. Back in the sixties, the department of transportation in the U S was funding research on autonomous vehicles. Think about Tesla's, these automated vehicles. Well, back then the computers weren't fast enough and so one time, the representative from the Department of Transportation came to Ohio State. That's where he was getting his PhD, and he was supposed to show a demo. And the headwind was too much, and the car didn't veer properly. The reason being the computers weren't fast enough for him to right. compute the Taylor expansion series to the third
0: place. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so that delayed his dissertation by a year. And then, you know, I was born in the early 1970s. And so in our house, there was always, you know, um, magazines, I computer, you know, he was a professor. So there was a lot of yeah. this notion of knowing things matters and education matters. And there was a healthy um, competition between me and my sibling about, you know, um, can, can you get this quickly? You know, how can you quickly solve math problem? And then basically good at math, I could see these electrical engineering stuff, and I was like, Oh, computer science is in the middle. It's the bastard child of the two. Yeah. And so I decided to go into computer science in part because computer science is very rewarding. When you solve a problem, you feel like the smartest person yes. on earth. And when it doesn't work, you're like, Oh, I'm the dumbest person on earth. <laughs> um, and so I went into computer science, um, and, uh, I wanted to do programming languages. Mm-hmm. And then I took a class in machine learning, uh, with my. Then to be PhD advisor. And I really love the topic. And this is like, we're talking about in the mid-1990s, right? Nobody cared about machine learning. Nobody cared about AI. It was in the winter of it. It was lovely. Yeah. Yes. Um, I was working on artificial neural networks. Uh, you know, back then, of course, we did not have all this data that's currently available or the fast GPUs. Um, but it was, it was lots of fun. You know? And it was one of those topics that I would actually pick up papers to read. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like when you get to a particular topic that you love and you just pick up the papers like that for me, machine learning. And then when I got introduced to network science, it was a similar thing, which is like, oh, this is really cool. I should read about this. So,
0: um, All right. But I I need so I I, there's a lot to lot to uh, unpack here. So I want to ask. So you so your dad was at Ohio and doing the autonomous vehicles. And
1: th- yeah, so for his dissertation, he was at Ohio State and so uh, Ohio State University at Columbus, Ohio. Yes. Yeah.
0: And but did you grow up in the U.S. also, or
1: no? I was born here, but predominantly I grew up in Tehran, Iran. So he was yes. a professor at a university in Tehran. Yes. Yeah.
0: Be- because so so the reason the reason I I dig uh, into the past still is because. Yeah. I also think that a lot of uh, young people listen to this and this kind of path of how you come from uh, you know like somewhere in the world and then make your way to the US and the US system and become a professor and so on I think it's is super interesting and it's also uh, interesting to me. So, 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 um, and and how many siblings were you? Now I'm curious. So, so you were, you were.
1: At the time, I only had one older brother. And Now I have, uh, obviously, still the older brother and yeah. the younger brother.
0: All right. So you... Um. Yeah.
1: But the, the the thing about it is, so my path is slightly different. I think everybody's path is slightly different. But yeah. you know, I feel like I was a child of a technocrat because all of my uh, father's friends also were folks who came to America to get educated. Most yeah. of them in engineering, uh, but there were also folks who got a PhD in political science from UPenn, or mechanical engineering from Berkeley, or yeah. you know so on and so forth. So these are these were folks who were like on top of um, their class uh, when yeah. they finished college, and then at the time there was a program that would send them to uh wherever they got in but mostly at the time was america was the place to go yeah um during my grandfather's time it was france <laughs> yes but then it shifted yeah right people were like oh i went to sorbonne yeah. then it was like no i went to america and yeah. so that, that kind
0: so you of lived me. in this kind of super international uh outwardly focused group of people also that were all um, yeah
1: yeah, and even though like, I, prim- uh, I was predominantly in Tehran, we would come to the US and the West um, yeah. every summer, you know, every year, basically, um, I would spend some time in the West about like three months or something like that. I remember as a teenager going to University of Vienna and studying German uh, when I was like, I don't know, 15, something like that. Yes.
0: Nice. And then yeah. you and your brother were competing who could do math problems the fastest?
1: yeah or like build models of of airplanes fastest or stuff like that you know
0: i ask because you know i have kids now and i like i i exactly i also i grew up you know like pre-internet and where you had to read books or find other means of entertainment and i think that there is something that comes out of this kind of like less friction free challenges, you know, like you have to come up with like weird worlds or games with your siblings or, or something like this, but it's, it's harder in this kind of mainstreamed um, social media world that the kids are growing up in now.
1: Definitely, definitely. And I remember like with my uh, brother and my cousins going to like the river that was near my grandfather's house and like, collecting frogs and looking at them and seeing how they would (laughs) interact with each other and so it was just like it it wasn't just like engineering or physics it was also like looking at some stuff about biology and i was like okay biology is hard i'm not gonna touch biology like very early on yeah
0: yeah yeah exactly just the like being fascinated with the world i guess right and and um figuring it out all right so
1: yeah And then as you were saying uh um, you know generations differ so my youngest brother is 11 years younger than me so my my brother my older brother and i we were both very studious and you know very much like you know the the mainstream educational system and my older brother is the director of glaucoma at boston university my younger brother um he wasn't very studious. Uh, he's like a venture capital in San Francisco. And I nice. remember when he was, <laughs> when AI and machine learning got really big, he called me. He was like, tell me everything you know about AI and machine learning. I'm like, you can't <laughs> afford me. <laughs> nice. When he was younger, he was like railing against the educational yeah. system. Nice. Like, why do I need to learn things <laughs> this way? You know, yeah. and I was like.
0: Yeah. yeah, I like it. Yes. No, now you have to pay your dues into uh, in, some... To some extent for sure that's super yeah. nice so so um yeah and I definitely but it's also it's not just at times it's I guess it's also being a younger brother right like my my youngest definitely is also um you know like my oldest can solve a r- Rubik's cube in less than uh, 10 seconds and my my youngest he has uh, long hair and wants to be in a rock band so so you know like uh, <laughs> there's something yeah. about the roles roles there as well I think probably
1: Um, like being the baby of the house you could do whatever you want you're like i'm gonna do a different way and why should i believe in your educational system (laughs) (laughs) but you know i'm a gen xer he's like a millennial so you know it's uh, different generations
0: (laughs) yes absolutely but i mean but but it's also i don't know if it's being damaged from a kind of life of studying things but i also find that it's more rewarding to do stuff that not everyone can do do you know what i mean that there is there is something beautiful about kind of climbing some kind of skill i I don't even know if you're climbing right but (laughs) that's what what it feels like but there's something amazing about doing something that's difficult or completing something that not everyone can can finish
1: yeah absolutely and like one of the things I always tell both my PhD students is that it's not that people who get a PhD are somehow smarter. It's just that they persevere, yeah. right? You know, by the end of it, you know, you're sick and tired of your dissertation. You're sick and tired of your advisor saying fix this or fix that, and you want to get out, but you just persevere, and that's really it.
0: Yes, no, for so sure. and
1: that's the the joy of it.
0: Yeah, but then like something happens, and and after a while, then you you become kind of addicted to this perseverance right kind of i mean i have this all the time that it's it's this i have this thing that i feel that there's a struggle between me and the problem and there's no way the problem is going to win and and people are like well isn't it (laughs) you know like isn't aren't you coming uh to eat dinner and i'm like yes but you don't understand we we have something going on here me and this problem and i like i'm i'm getting that you know, like the, the the upper hand finally, or something, right?
1: Yeah, it's like solving a mystery, right? That's the fun of it. It's it's like um, I don't know if you like these kinds of mystery private investigator shows. Yes, um, but I like them, and it's similar to that. And it, perhaps that's why they also call us investigators, right? Uh, where it's like, oh, okay, what, what, you know, who killed who? Like, what happened here? Like, why is that number like that? You know, and so that's the fun of it, trying to figure out and get to the bottom of things
0: a hundred percent i mean first of all yes i'm a huge fan of uh <laughs> of crime shows and i have in my whole life like when i was 11 i wanted to start a detective agency uh you know so so uh so i'm i'm 100 on board with this mystery <laughs> <laughs> mystery solving part of it
1: yeah that, maybe uh, we could have a detective agency but you know we call it like math detective and the number one <laughs> detective yes. agency all over you know <laughs> There was a show by Alexander McCall Smith. Actually, he wrote a book that then became a show. um, Number one, ladies' detective agency in Botswana. So in Gaborone, Botswana. But we could have one, you know. I guess we have one anyway. We just don't call them.
0: Yes. I mean, one time the Danish police contacted me for something with graph analysis. And I'm like, I hope this is going to be the start of, like, numbers or... um, what else is there bones you know like there are these yeah. these, these yeah. shows of but it, 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 they they found out i was completely useless and then um and then we yeah. we we skipped it again but i i had a i had <laughs> I had a dream but uh, yeah i guess you know it would um we would have to make a lot of money doing this otherwise i feel like it would detract from <laughs> from the science but it would be nice to True. solve a murder once in a while all right
1: it's usually fraud right so for example with folks who mine or learn from graph data, it's usually fraud or some anomaly detection. Yes. So one of my mentors, Christos Falutzos, has done a lot in, in terms of fraud on uh, on eBay, right? And like the bad guys never talk to each other, right? Yeah. They talk through intermediary to the good guys and stuff. And I believe he actually got a call from FBI as well, like you know this software, whatever. But um, but it's usually fraud. It's not like murder or something. You no. know, it's not like bones. You know, you come across some, <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, yes.
1: <laughs> remnants.
0: Yes, so. there's also a lot more work that goes into the data visualization that they do that than you know like we have time for 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 most of the plots uh, with the 3D stuff. But anyway, but I'm oh, glad yeah. you like this. Okay, but hang on, we have to get back to the main thread. So so uh, y- you grow up in Tehran, and then you. When do you come to the U.S. to to? Um...
1: In high school, I come to the U.S. in high school. I finish high school here, and then in Madison, Wisconsin, and then I go to University of Wisconsin, Madison. All right. Um, yeah.
0: And then also super interesting to to, to be kind of in machine learning pre data revolution because I, I, I the department that I am in so so I studied at the Niels Bohr Institute and studied physics. But I did my PhD in a department also that is kind of exactly like now incredibly successful because they were just in the right place at the right time. But there were many, many years, as you call the the dark year or the winter or whatever, of doing neural networks and then nobody caring at all, right? Uh, so, so there's also been this huge... Thing so 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 when you started at university, like more specifically, what were you working on? Like what kind of um, problems?
1: Yeah, so for my thesis, for for my PhD um, thesis, for my dissertation, I was I built one of the earlier personalized web searches, and so there were two neural networks that right. one would learn the kind of pages you liked, and one would learn the kind of links you liked, hyperlinks that you liked. Yes, and um, uh, the idea was back then obviously we didn't have the data or the fast architecture the hardware so Mm -hmm. the idea was theory refinement that if i knew something about you i could code it in the architecture of the neural network in terms of this if then else rules so if let's say i want to learn something as simple as candy like what is candy and if i say well if shiny then likely to be candy right or if shiny and sweet then candy then i can put that as part of the architecture of the neural network. Mm-hmm. And so when I get something that's shiny and sweet, then the hidden layer will f- uh, fire, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Yes. Now, of course, this would also get data and hence theory requirement. Um, and so then if your theory was wrong, then it would get refined. If your theory was right, then you needed less data to converge. Yeah. Right. And so um, so that, that's what we were working on. It wasn't in, like just one hidden layer back for back then it was considered deep because you yeah, have yeah. like multiple hidden layers, but not like, like what it is now where you have oh. like trillions of parameters. Um, so that's what I was working on for my PhD dissertation yeah. for my master's dissertation. I worked on simulations for the air force and that was really fun. Oh, so wow. visual programming basically yeah so that was uh, basically like okay in a cockpit for for a pilot like how would he be able to um reprogram the system by drawing so
0: oh wow that sounds crazy and and amazing but but yeah
1: yeah so over time I, I moved away from like the core computer science where like I wanted to do lambda calculus and programming languages and then I hit Turing tar pit so the Turing tar pit is a place where everything's possible but nothing interesting is doable mm-hmm. and then i was like oh this is boring i don't yes. want to be in this tar pit. i want to <laughs> no. get out and then i found machine learning and then i got into this um doing personal at, at the time in the early 90s if you remember um you know um anything that had to do with web was becoming very popular so the that um, Sergey Brin and Page paper, the Larry Page uh, um, PageRank paper, right, came mm-hmm. around ninety five, I think yes. ninety seven. So that's when like everybody was like, okay, what do we do with this data on the web? And so I was working on a personalized uh, web search.
0: So when was this relative to that uh, ninety five paper? Was this?
1: Um, so I started my PhD in ninety five, and then I graduated in two thousand one. So it was around the same time, like. Oh, I remember Lycos and HotBot and AltaVista yeah. yes. and all of those.
0: <laughs> I <laughs> totally know, remember also web search pre-Google. And it I mean, it's wild how much better PageRank was, right? Like it was... Um, yeah.
1: Right. And in particular, because it got rid of... Uh, so there was no link spam, though uh, there were no term spam. And at the time, link spam was also very difficult to do. But one of the things which is interesting now is it seems like term spam is coming back in a different form. Mm -hmm. So as you probably know, a lot of hirings now go through one, at least one machine learning based software. And so now people are trying to trick that machine learning based software um, by putting uh, terms on their CV or resume where a human wouldn't be able to see it, but a computer would see it. Mm-hmm. So if your CV's background is white and you put in, in white fonts, like Stanford, MIT, Berkeley, blah, 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 right? Yeah, Then yeah, it's yeah. more likely that it makes it past that machine learning um, software. Yes. Um, And that it, then a human would see it. And but, so now it's making a comeback.
0: <laughs> but this to me is some kind of really interesting meta point, right? Which is... It seems that we're like my sense is we're not going to fix any problems. Like the, all, <laughs> it's all like from now on, and forward is it's an arms race. Do you know what I mean? That like when like my like my example is, you know, like when you're online, and everything you do, basically, you should think of yourself as being naked, right? Like you're searching on Google and you're revealing like the most intimate things about yourself um your uh, vanities and your fears and whatever it is right you, like you don't tell anyone but you would tell google that you know like you're looking for <laughs> i don't know uh, right. yeah. how to get uh great apps or something and then um and and there's and it's like this thing that no matter how we lock it down as long as something touches the internet like someone can store it and maybe you make it illegal to store it in western countries or in, in 90% of all the countries in the world but there's going to be one country that's saying like we're just going to log the internet and then we have it and we can then make you know like take this data and re- sell it back to companies or, or whatever like you it's you're stuck but so so what's the solution and and i think that instead of saying like how can we get the data out of these like instead you know like all we can do is maybe s- say i'm going to do 100 searches every day of all different things and you know create noise around who i am rather than so i can so i can plausibly deny <laughs> any search or something right and it's just one example of how somehow i think that's the dynamic that we're going to get into rather than fixing things it's a more kind of arms race situation.
1: It is an armorist, though. I think that they will be able to uh, figure out who you are at your core over time. Um, as you probably know, Facebook uh, has two sets of books on its people, right? Because people lie. And so yeah. but then as they go on in their daily um, lives on Facebook, then they're able to infer like, who is this person and that this person didn't do all this stuff that they're saying they did. But you're absolutely right. You know, there is a um this this notion of a a war if you want because they're taking the data and monetizing it and of course you don't get anything from it um i teach a course called algorithms that affect lives to first-year students here at northeastern yeah and uh, it's a course that it requires no math so i get up there and i tell them about these algorithms that are being used that they use every day um in english and one of the homeworks was to log out of google just try like DuckDuckGo versus Google. And I got such a pushback of like, I don't want to log out of Google. I'm like, you know, you can log back in. Like, there's no problem. Yeah. And there was this one student who, I guess, up on the eighth floor of one of the dorms uses DuckDuckGo. And he was like, famous. Oh, yeah, yeah. James, the, the weird James <laughs> uses DuckDuckGo. And it was like, it's fine, people. It's okay. Yeah. So.
0: But what would anyway. they worried? Like, they worried that Google's picture of them would be misleading or incomplete or like i'm
1: i think it was just inconvenience right it was just that they they feel like um google gives them the utility they want and they just didn't want to log out and log back in you know that's wild
0: i spend a lot of time thinking about how i can be logged out of google (laughs) so this is like you had to explain to me what uh, yeah but it is but it is convenient like in the end for example. I ended up like buying my own Google hosted domain so that I can have all the Google products. But then since I pay for it, I then also own the data and part of the analytics because it is, it is also good stuff that they make. I mean, I agree with, with the students on that.
1: The the utility of it is, is something that they just couldn't get over, you know, even though like Dr. Go does very well, you know, um and and in part like the exercise was log out of Google and then go into the igni- incognito mode or private mode of your um web browser and do some searches and see the difference between DuckDuckGo and the incognito logged out of Google and Google still will know your location and uses your location DuckDuckGo doesn't. Yeah. Um, and so just for them to see what's going on.
0: Yeah, no no no, but it's 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 for sure it's for sure wild that what's happening but i but yeah but i i have a sense that you know there's there's nowhere to hide but maybe there can be a kind of arms race of of uh you know then (laughs) then i don't know what the next step in the resumes but that's i didn't know that i had to um put mit and stanford in my in white font or you
1: know what are the keywords (laughs) that they're like oh yeah and i worked at google and apple and whatever whatever you know whatever the job is or Goldman Sachs or (laughs) whatever you know yeah um but i think the best way for this uh for where we are is to educate the public and so that's why i had uh, i have that class right yeah so another exercise for the students is to go and um enter material on wikipedia and see if the material stays or if the material gets taken down because for example they don't have sources or whatever else um So they are nice little little um, homeworks that they have to do, and they they kind of like, oh, okay, <laughs> like my yeah. material got deleted from Wikipedia immediately. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's like, but I
0: I heard that it's like I heard some stories that it's absolutely impossible to get anything on Wikipedia unless you you kind of have to build a track record and a resume and and do things in a very specific, like that I think Laszlo had a story that he was tried to edit the network science page and he was just totally shut down by by some of the editors because he didn't do it in the right right way well you
1: have to have obviously you have to have an account and then you can um add stuff and if you add stuff that there's reference to it and then they check the reference then it does stay but if you add stuff that has no other reference then it's less likely to to say. Yeah, yeah yeah there's something
0: about can. like secondary uh uh sources and so on there was results you can't be a primary source i think i also heard of a story about like some someone where there was a story about them on wikipedia that was wrong and then they tried to f- fix it like someone famous and they couldn't <laughs> because it was misreported in a newspaper and then you know like they go well i'm brad pitt and this didn't happen and the, the wikipedia editors were like well i mean you don't have a source for it and he's like well yeah I'm, <laughs> so there's uh there's some funny uh, stories about that stuff, but anyway,
1: yeah they're big on sources so yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, but anyway, but it's a magnificent you know like thing Wikipedia right it's like a like someone had a cool saying about it, something like it's one of the only things that you know like shouldn't work in theory but works in practice or like it's you know like the it's the opposite of everything else that works in theory but doesn't work in practice this one doesn't work in theory but works in practice and that's like a wild uh, thing yes yeah. yes all right anyway so so um you also mentioned this turing tar pit which sounds uh yeah. super cool and this is another thing i think that's also interesting for young researchers. this is like when do you change direction what is the sign like because you should persevere we already established that but at the same time you should also know when to quit right so so can you talk a little bit about this because you have made some pivots in your career Um, yeah so so like do you have any thoughts on this
1: yes indeed so um, I was going to get my PhD at University of Illinois, a champaign champagne. And so there I was doing programming languages, and there's where I encountered the touring tar pit. And it was like, okay, no, I don't want to be here because like nothing interesting is doable. And then I got married. And so then my husband was a, a PhD student at Wisconsin, and he's a philosopher. So it was easier for me to move and have support than for him to yes. move and have support. So when I Got my master's at University of Illinois and went to University of Wisconsin. That's where I took a class on machine learning with Jude Shavlick. So we were one of the guinea pigs for Tom Mitchell's now classic machine learning textbook. And um, that's when I I fell in love with machine machine learning. And then I did the personalized web search. Then I uh, went to Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. That's where the hydrogen bomb was invented. So most people know about the Manhattan Project, Los Alamos national laboratory atomic bomb uh i went to los alamos because i didn't want to go into academia i thought academics were weird academics are still weird but then what (laughs) i realized was i was weird too so that's (laughs) very (laughs) nice um, and so when i went there i started working on scientific simulation data so we can't blow up nuclear weapons so we study um other kinds of explosions like supernova and other kinds of things and so i was building um statistical indices over these large um amounts of data that these scientific simulation data was outputting so basically physicists put up these complex differential equations and these big iron machines they produced lots and lots of um, data and that data wasn't being looked at and so I was working on that. It was lots of fun, uh, yeah. working on, you know, stars exploding. And all of my examples were like, everything's fine. And then a wall crushes a can or, <laughs> you know, something explodes. And then 9/11 happened. So when 9/11 happened, then there was all this stuff of can we connect? Could, could we have connected the dots, right? There was yes. this notion of if we had connected the dots, we could have stopped it. And of course, that's now like, close to 21 years ago. And then a lot of research funding went into network science, went into mining and machine learning of networks.
0: Because I was going to say that this is like the first time I remember seeing your name was from the Lawrence Livermore lab, I think.
1: Yes. You you were doing
0: some stuff on really big graphs or something, maybe? Exactly.
1: And that's actually how I also, so when I started looking at graphs, that's how I also met Christos Paloutsos, and that's also how I met all the network scientists. Yes. Um, Christos Paloutsos, who was a computer scientist, was working on um, uh, mining algorithms for big graphs. Of Mm -hmm. course, big is relative, right? So if you go to Google and give a talk and say, I work on a big graph, they will laugh you out of the building um but some of the pivots has to do with events in the world right so if Mm -hmm. 9 11 hadn't happened and if the u.s government and its funding agencies weren't putting all this money into network science and into graph mining then i probably would still be like working on either scientific simulation data or other kinds of data right um but then I really, liked, I really liked relational learning and relational dependencies. And that's kind of where I have been, I would say, since like 2003 or 2005. Yes. Um, but recently I've kind of expanded onto ethics of AI and et cetera. But yeah. I still love graphs and I yeah, still yeah. like machine learning on graphs.
0: Yeah. But I guess, I guess like when we're thinking about pivots or changing direction, I mean, I have also been thinking about those things, uh, at least to some extent, and part of it is also external events. It's seeing that it's so necessary, right? That it's it it kind of I think drives you to to like we all have to reckon with with this, right? Like I was I was I I just came back from Italy where I taught a summer school class and and uh, that made me dust off some of the old stuff that i had done and there were kind of these old heady days when the game was very much kind of can i find like some wild data set online that no one has thought about that is out there and then go and scrape it without asking anyone's permission (laughs) and then write a paper about it and 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 back then, it was not clear that there was any problem in that, right? It it was just kind of a new continent or like a new territory that we had uh, discovered. And I think everyone just uh, rushed in that direction, or at least <laughs> everyone that I know. I mean, probably already then some people were more... Sensitive, and it's only now that we think well maybe maybe we should ask the people that c- caused the data to come to be right and, and some of the classic data sets are now considered highly problematic for for good reason so so yeah so so it's 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 crazy somehow also to see how 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 naive we were back in the early days right
1: Um, Yes. And actually, as as part of that, there's, you know, following on what you were saying about external events, now that AI enabled systems and ML machine learning enabled systems are being used in so many different things, including high six situations such as criminal justice, etc. That's how I got into AI and ethics and studying those. So about uh, five years ago, uh, my friend Daniel Allen, who is the director of Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard asked me to come and give a public lecture on AI ethics. And that's how I started. Yeah. And now, you know, a good chunk of my research is about, um, for example, how AI researchers see their role um, in society, uh, which is abysmal, I can tell you <laughs> a little bit about it, if you're interested. in Yeah, it. I'd love to hear. It. Um, and how Um, you know how these systems are being used and are harming people and basically AI researchers don't care so much (laughs) which is sad Um, and how obviously like the algorithms we develop aren't islands right they're part of this complex system and you have to care about
0: the complex
1: system that your algorithm is part of
0: yes but tell me a little bit more about that because that sounds uh, super exciting
1: so, yeah, my student, David Lu, um, who was actually at Meta AI this summer with a bunch of other folks, uh, we I did my first qualitative study, thanks to students. You know, students are great because yes. they teach you new things. For sure. Um, and so we went through all of the negative societal impact statements of NeurIPS, which is the premier machine learning conference um from last year from 2021 and then 2021 there was also an ethics committee that reviewed these impact statements mm-hmm. and so we went through both of them right both the um the statements and the the role of this ethics review and the just uh, just so
0: like just so i can better understand like because i c- kind of have a sense what would be a, an example of a statement and a review of a statement like what would a st- What would a yeah? So
1: I will I will talk about the statements in a minute. So basically the statements, and I'll go with themes, and then I'll give you some specific examples. There were basically three themes. One was lack of agency. I'm just an AI researcher. I'm just doing my research. You know how people use it, not my problem. Yes. Right. It's the blame is on practitioners. So if Tina is harmed because some practitioner is using this um, math this model, this software, it's not my fault, right? So lack of agency. Um, The second one was basically denying responsibility, uh, either explicitly or implicitly. Um, A lot of it was like, yes, this can cause harm, but it's future work. And it's not clear whose future work it is. Yeah. Um, And then uh, reassigning responsibility, right, again, to the user to the field, like, if I'm working on generative adversarial networks and generative adversarial networks can be used for deep fakes and deep fakes can be used to harm people. It's like, look, this entire subfield can cause harm to people. And yeah. so the subfield should come up with a solution to this, yeah. not me as a as a researcher. Yeah. And there were other ones where it's like, yes, you know, this model, uh, because it has so many parameters, it will warm the climate. Uh, but look how cool the math is. So A lot of it was like, how cool the math is. Yeah, uh, and it's okay that it will cause harm to the climate or cause harm to minorities and underrepresented people, um, and those are some some samplings of like what we saw, which was like really disheartening.
0: That's wild because one yeah. like so. I mean, I I think it's. I mean, when you know, some of the stuff that I do also is about predicting what happens to human beings uh, in the future. <laughs> and, and, and then when I get the question, I will say something along the lines of, well, you know, it's important that we have someone doing this work that is publishing and being open about what's possible and so that we can have the discussion. And I think that that's a kind of a good answer. But what you're saying is that it's it's not enough. You also have to take responsibility to to then also generate that discussion, and and make sure that you have stakeholders, maybe even one level out, let's say among the politicians and so on, so that these results also come to um, come to like that that there is. There is a discussion, and then there's also the possibility that someone can then make decisions based on that knowledge, right? It's so. So I think it's a good point that it's not enough to say, "Yeah, we're doing it because it's important to know what's even possible." Uh, and if I didn't publish it, it would be happening inside big companies, anyways. You know, so 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 I think this is a, like a very important point, essentially.
1: Yeah, and 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 there, I guess the one thing I would say is, and there are many of these examples, I'll give you one example of uh, what's happening. In many of these cases, when you're doing a prediction, it's some kind of a risk score. Yes. So you're assessing risk of somebody. And what happens is the decision maker only sees either a thumbs up or a thumbs down or something on a scale of zero to 10, right? The like mm-hmm. risk of Tina you know, defaulting on the loan is nine. But yeah. the decision maker never gets any kind of uncertainty score. Yes. Right. So it's not that... Because clearly, like your prediction model is not 100% sure that risk of Tina defaulting on loan is nine. No. And if you tell that to the decision maker, maybe they will change their mind. And there was a case in America, actually in Wisconsin, where a judge overthrew a plea deal that lawyers have come up with on both sides, obviously, it's a plea deal, Uh, because the risk assessment software said the risk of the guy committing um a crime while being out is high. Yes. Um, but there was it's no wild. uncertainty score, right? So my yeah. guess is like perhaps if the judge knew that the prediction model wasn't very sure, then he wouldn't overthrow the yes. Plea deal. No,
0: no, this is but this is wild, right? Because I think I mean so I did some work on modeling COVID and 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 uh, and we had to exactly communicate the results of, of some of the models to the like quote unquote decision makers right but but the the politicians and and the um, health uh, uh, authorities and and they also they don't want they don't want uh error bars right like they don't they don't want a, a sense of to say that we're not sure like they want one number and and it is kind of a fundamental problem that it's difficult for human beings to even know what to do with uncertainty. And then in AI, there's the other thing that, like, also, a lot of times we don't have good ways of assigning a sense of uncertainty, right? Because the models are so big that we don't have, we, we, like, um it's very, very costly to generate new, <laughs> you know, like, to train it again on, like, a, like to do this kind of, uh, you know, like, cross-validation or however you would get your error bars on your complicated model. Some of it is kind of you know, like very costly or not always like meaningful to put air bars on from like what the theory we can do. So there's also kind of a practical problem for some of it.
1: Right. And this is why I just like, at least um, like from my perspective, I need to tell them that the model has uncertainty. Now how I tell them exactly, as you said, it's difficult. And especially since they don't want to hear it, right? Yeah, They really want thumbs up or thumbs down and computer scientists also, basically embrace this because we're very good at thumbs up or thumbs down right yeah. it's classification it's sorting right whether i sort into two buckets or whether i sort into 10 buckets or whatever yes. it's sorting i know sort, right computer science 101 is about sorting mm-hmm. and so um but in the meantime people are being hurt and so right now if you look at the field of ai ethics basically, there are two groups. And they're like on opposite side of Grand Canyon, the distance between them is very wide. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the group that's usually privileged in society, usually from academia, they pat themselves on the back, and they say, we're advancing science. And then there are people who are marginalized, um, who are saying, Look, our people are being harmed right now. Yeah. right. Uh, with these algorithms. And Maybe we should slow down (laughs) because people are being harmed, right? And so, and I don't see this gap being closed. That's the issue, at least in America, right? Until there are like some uh, lawsuits (laughs) with big money being paid out.
0: Yes, Um, I think, I mean, in my corner of academia that also, and it must also be in yours, which is, has more kind of the social science aspects. I think there is much more of feeling that this is, important but it's but what you're telling me i mean uh neurops is like that's the hardcore machine learning where maybe these these things are not coming up but uh, but uh, hopefully it can sort of propagate in that in that direction right and and um yeah
1: yeah i I feel like perhaps and one of the reasons we did this study that's gonna uh, be published in ai ethics and society at oxford uh october sorry august august 2022 I who knows which month or year it is anyways <laughs> in a couple of months yeah and and AIES is a triple AI ACM conference is to perhaps these kinds of negative uh, societal impact statements can be used to educate the yes. AI researchers because pr- predominantly um they don't care about it right um, yeah. predominantly they care about the math and that's also comes through right Um yeah. But then there are other things that can, one can do, and I was talking to Ben Yu, who's a distinguished professor at UC Berkeley, about maybe uh, conferences like NeurIPS need to mandate an assumptions section, or need to mandate a technical limitations section. Yes, Because all of these models make assumptions, all of them have technical limitations, and usually people don't talk about them. Um, because yeah. if you talk about them, then maybe your paper will get it, uh, rejected.
0: <laughs> Already
1: yeah. the odds are against your paper, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, but I think that's it's exactly about incentives, right? Like like no matter how you slice and dice it, these NURPS is competitive. And it's not just a little bit competitive. It's crazy, crazy, crazy competitive. And it's clear that if you're competing against the best in the world and the game doesn't have any points scored for doing uh anything except beautiful math of course that's what these highly competitive people are going to be optimizing for like what what like i would be optimizing for that if i like even though i feel strong ethical obligation i also have a strong sense of competition right and so you you, you know like you're you're kind of like the i think that you need to change structurally the uh like the reward system in order to change change these things so i think that would be be like a nice thing and i I think another thing is also it is somehow also that that the whole kind of focus on fairness and what fairness means and the deep complex math of fairness and so on has also been a little bit of a wild goose chase in a way because uh because it reduces again these kind of big structural things in society to like a nice, neat little mathematical problem where, you know, like where you can kind of say, oh, but I'm going to, but that's not what it's about. It's about that when we implement stuff, we need to do everything we can to make sure that, you know, like minorities and the disadvantaged are not just steamrolled by algorithms. And that's, we don't fix that by, you know, changing some, fairness instead we think about like what is it that this machine is doing and how can we make sure that what happens is somehow you know more uh i i think that i mean i don't know the terminology but i think like it's more just or like something than just kind of pure fairness right
1: yeah you hit it right on the nail on on many things so one is the incentive structure right um and i was just at the museum of science here in boston talking with folks who are using ai in healthcare and I was asking, like, what is the incentive for the doctor um, to use a machine learning based system? Is it is the incentive that perhaps the doctor is not going to spend 10 minutes with me as opposed to 15 minutes? Yeah. Right. Is the incentive that somehow um, the data or the machines that, that did the tests on me? are in the distribution of me. And like, this can give some good predictions, like what is happening, right? And thinking about the incentives is extremely important. And then along these lines, usually, somebody asks, well, the human is biased anyway, right? And that's where I always um, um, tell them about um, Cesar Hidalgo's new book, uh, which I know, you know, Cesar, well, yes, um, Um, about how humans judge machines and how when a machine causes you harm, you don't assign intent to it. But Mm -hmm. when a human causes you harm, you assign intent to the human, Yes. right? And so this gets to accountability. And so we still haven't figured that out. (laughs) Uh, And in AI, we have no professional norms. So everybody's just waiting for regulations to come from on high, which I think is the wrong thing to think about. And like uh, like other sciences like uh, medicine um biology etc they have codes of ethics right the chinese doctor who used CRISPR to change the genome of a fetus was excommunicated from his society and i believe he's in jail now there's nothing an ai researcher can do you know to get excommunicated from the community right and that's something which is uh, it's like well maybe we should have professional norms
0: and then finally
1: what you were saying all of this work in terms of fairness it's just constrained optimization. We love optimization. This is constrained yeah. optimization. Yes, right? yes, yes. It's yes. really not getting deep into like, uh, like why should I believe in consequentialism, right? Or deontology, like, or, you know, I just like really think more deeply about the issues like fairness and justice and stuff like that, yes. as you
0: said. Yeah, and I think also just one tiny smidge on this, on on top of it, which is, like I think that the politicians have a role to play but the problem is that they don't they don't understand any of the complexity of the problems that we're dealing with and so like and we don't even right like even if you get the best minds available and say okay now we want to fix the problems with social media what should we do let's say right just to t- pick an example we don't we don't know right like as you say it's like a huge crazy complex system interacting algorithms uh people feedback loops all this crazy stuff and and so if they asked me and said okay we're going to put you in charge what should we do to fix things i would say i i really i really 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 don't know and the state of the research that's out there is that there are some interesting studies but many many of them are not very general, right? Like they look at one, like, like when you're a researcher, you look very critically in all the papers and there's not kind of something where I would, you know, like uh, trust to say this this paper shows unequivocally that this is the right move, right? And then there's a paper saying, well, actually it's not so bad. It's blah, blah, blah. And then there's another paper claiming the opposite. And I think so we're also in this, there, like there is very little, knowledge really to hang on to. And so that's why we have to come together and have some long discussions and say, what can we agree on as the first step? And then once we then implement that, we can iterate and, and begin to create these norms. Right.
1: Exactly. Because you never know, like the solution that you come up with, what happens to it when you release it in the wild. I, I yeah. believe it was David Rand, his group that had a paper about how on Twitter, they used to put these like blue boxes Uh, next to some some tweets about like the veracity of this tweet or something and then the way people interacted with it was that if a tweet didn't have it they assumed it was all true
0: right so unless you get
1: them all yes (laughs) you know so they assumed a closed world they were just like no 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 they didn't assume closed world it was just like okay this one seems suspicious yes um you never know how people are going to interact with
0: it but it makes sense right like it's we just we we come up with heuristics, we make shortcuts, whatever it is. And this seems like, you know, like, it must be extra bad this one if it has the box, right?
1: <laughs> right. And everything else is fine, yeah, right? Yeah. It doesn't have a box. So, you know, yeah. but it goes back to what you were saying about, like, you know, people aren't good with uncertainty. People aren't good with certain other, like, you know, they make other inferences that perhaps they shouldn't be making. Yes. Right. So.
0: All right. So we, so I, this, I love this conversation, but the podcast is called Too Lazy to Read the Paper, and you shared with me a paper which I have been uh, too lazy to read, uh, although I did have a quick look at it. And so I'm going to read uh, the title, and it's called The Why, How, and When of Representations for Complex Systems. And it's, a, it's in SIAM Review, and I had a look, and it's huge. And it's terrifying, but also super interesting. So, so, so uh, tell me about this paper.
1: Uh, I'm happy to tell you about the paper. It's, uh, it was a mastermind of my uh, PhD student, Leo Torres, who's now at uh, Max Planck Institute for Mathematics and Sciences, and, uh, and Anne Seismore belvins who uh, was a PhD student of Danny Bassett's, who's now is at Biting's lab at UPenn. And yes. the idea was just to think about the analysis pipeline for a complex network and like, why do you choose to represent something as a simple graph, yeah. right? When you choose to represent a phenomenon as a simple graph, whether you like it or not, you're making certain assumptions and those assumptions will follow you throughout right? Yes. this whole analysis pipeline. And so, really, it was like thinking more deeply about, okay, if you're analyzing co authorship networks, maybe that downward closure, that a simplicial complex gives you is important if you want to predict like who will Tina publish a paper with next, right? Um, Or for example, if I give you a bunch of um, passenger commute data, and I tell you to infer the subway network, the metro network, maybe you should think about oh temporal dependencies matter. If I don't use a representation that can have temporal dependency in it, yeah. then no matter how great my prediction algorithm is, I won't get the right network because I won't get the exchanges correctly. Yes. Right. And so really it was, um, to me, it was uh, the reason I was excited about this paper and the project when Lo mentioned it to me was because machine learning people, like people, we take data as gospel. Mm -hmm. right Uh, and this is like no you shouldn't take data as gospel you should think about it right what are the processes that generate i know you as physicists you think about this all the time but machine learning people our focus is somewhere else right our focus is on what's the mathematical model we use how what's the optimization algorithm what's the loss function right um as opposed to like quizzing what's in this data and trying to
0: uh,
1: understand what dependencies are there
0: no totally i i think this is so important and i think that uh like i've been thinking a lot about this in a different context also for networks and and i i think that a problem is also that sometimes we are tricked into thinking about the process from the sociology or the human side and not from the system side of like how is the data even generated right so so So, so like, let's say um, Facebook or whatever, right? Like, like what, what is the kind of the fundamental thing that happens on Facebook? And, and, and there like the, you know, there's a lot of rules for like the fundamental thing that happens or one, like there's a friendship graph, of course, but is that you like you post something and then some stuff can happen downstream from the post, But the set of actions that can happen and the graph that can unfold is highly constrained, right? And a lot of times what we'll do is we'll take this highly constrained data and then we'll like simulate some process on it as if it has to do with knowledge spreading or what like the mental state of the participants or whatever. But in fact, there are many constraints in the data that we're working on that we're not even taking into account. And so I think this is like like very very important point to think about
1: absolutely and i think this again goes back to assumptions goes back to you know is there noise in the data like i've been working on a project from nsf uh it's called rules of life about whether we can predict evolution and yeah. it's my first time looking at biological networks and they're horrible yes, you know totally. it's even it's worse than social networks yeah 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 like,
0: no absolutely oh
1: my god what am yeah. I looking at here? No, like, no, is this just all noise? Like, what's going on, right? Yeah. And so then it becomes even more important in terms of thinking about, okay, what kind of dependencies are important? Like, is spatial dependency important? I, am I capturing it? If yes. I represent it one way versus the other? Or like, one of the things that I've realized, like, a lot of people use hypergraphs as basically sets of sets. Mm-hmm. They don't really look at the fact that for example, if when I look at a hyperedge, there could be nodes in that hyperedge that don't have dyadic relationships with each other. Yes, so then those kinds of missing substructures are important, uh, and so it's like, okay, great, but are you just using it as sets of sets, or are you, you really using it as a hypergraph?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, like there could be some yeah. kind there could be some structure within each of these sets, essentially. No, no, but I think this is exactly. so important but but and and can i just there's a there's a big reason that i look at social systems and it's exactly that we have the data and we have precise temporal data for a lot of the systems right because especially like in some biological system you can get a sense of what does the interaction set look like but time is so important and time is very hard to pull out of a living system right because you uh you destroy it in a a significant way when you try and figure out what's going on with it and you and there's a lot you can't get even if i then build a thousand identical cells or whatever something different is going to be going on in them so you're getting these ensemble measurements rather than you know exactly
1: and the other aspect of it is for example computer scientists we don't do time well right we discretize things we say do you want it fast or do you want it good do you want it fast <laughs> i tell you you want it fast right, yes, right? Yes, so yes. notion sort of continuous time like why are you discretizing this way why monday tuesday wednesday right yeah, it's yeah. like
0: no but i know. but i also discretize time and part of it is also just for my own brain like i it's very very difficult for I at least for my brain I can't speak for others but for, like imagine just imagine in your mind a kind of a, a graph where time like con- with continuous time changes it's just you know like, yeah. it's very hard to keep keep in keep, <laughs> keep in ram right or whatever uh, it's going on yes. there.
1: No I agree I agree but you know this again goes back to certain assumptions that we make and you know the whole of the paper is like you need to be careful about these assumptions, you need to write them down. And that even if you get a second set of data from the same system, the assumptions you made on the first data set may not translate to the second data set. Yes, right. Which is the same, like as you were saying with Facebook, you know, depending on whether you're working on the friendship network on or on who posts on whom or who likes whom, right? Um, You you, perhaps are different assumptions that are going on. Yeah. So
0: no no but I mean so, so now I am really going to read this paper because I wrote a I wrote a kind of philosophy paper about about how to model communication networks where I basically say that like, there's only a few different classes of typical events that happen in communication networks and that and that it's important to kind of only do comparisons between networks within the same class because like the whatever communication motif is here as you like you mentioned the co-author graph right like it's like that's there's only kind of a certain um set of relationships that comes out of that actually it's a crazy like I, this is like now a side side comment to a side comment but <laughs> that graph is absolutely crazy right because you have the authors connecting to authors through collaboration and that in a way is like a true That like that's a clique in some sense but then not really because there's a history blah 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 then like they're inducing citations between the papers (laughs) right but but the authors have different properties that travel down to the like you can look at correlations in the citation graph that's done by the authors so that is i've i still don't think i know exactly how to represent that graph but it's a wild it's a it's yeah a one. and
1: actually this is an excellent point you bring up because like if you look at like a naturally occurring unipartite network right versus like a projected bipartite network, like author paper that then you make, make it a co-author right by making the co-authorship network by multiplying the author paper by paper author matrix yes uh, the matrices together you are adding this notion of Transitivity dependency, right? As yeah. you said, there's going to be a lot of cliques. There are going to be a lot more triangles than you would expect in a naturally occurring, you know, yes. network, right? Yes. And so, all of these things are really great. I love. I like talking about those. And yeah. the key is to actually write these assumptions down. Yes. In a paper explicitly.
0: But it. <laughs> but, it uh, but my sense is also that there is kind of you. You suggest a kind of workflow for doing this, like a kind of set of general principles that one should go through? Yeah,
1: exactly. So basically, first thinking about what are the dependencies that are important to model, and then based on those dependencies, then picking the right mathematical formulas We only talk about three. Obviously, there are more. We talk about simple graphs, simplicial complexes, and hypergraphs. Yes. And we talk about how, for example, if you take a hypergraph and you say, well, Maybe I don't know what the the largest eigenvalue of this hyper, of the incidence matrix of this this hypergraph is. I'm just going to make it a simple graph, right? When you make it a simple graph, then you're going to lose information. And then when you go from the simple graph and make a hypergraph, then you're making assumptions. And those two hypergraphs are going to be different, right? So you need to be aware of that. And then based on the mathematical formalism that you pick, then there are certain questions that you can answer. And then you should, You should know about those and you should know that okay you know what i cannot answer certain questions because i decided to go with simple graph right yeah or i cannot answer certain questions because i decided to go with hypergraph and so just being cognizant of it and then we also talk about the analysis so now at the end when you're doing your your analysis depending on which mathematical formalism you pick um, you can get different results, right? Yes. You can, for example, simple graph, you can get periphery, And then if you represent a hypergraph, you can get, like, Oh, look, there are two communities here. Yes. Right. Uh, and the communities may not map to the core periphery communities that you have yes.
0: found. So yeah. no, no, it's there. Are, it's important to be aware of the many, many choices that you make when you, when you analyze data, that's, it's just, um, Yeah. exactly and usually
1: people don't talk about them right because that's not the fun bit
0: (laughs) yeah no 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 absolutely and and i mean and actually that reminds me of a thing that i i thought about when when you mentioned the biology uh work which sounds super exciting by the way and that's like one of the things one of the things i mentioned was this idea that when you look back one of the things we used to do was to say oh let me get all of like I'm let me scrape this website and find some human behavior and write a paper about it. And then whose data is it? Is it really okay to do? that's one aspect. But the other aspect that we're only just beginning like to just come to terms with now is that there was a kind of tacit agreement among all of us to say this is the whole universe. And like I have my network, <laughs> it's the universe, and you know what? It's okay. To pretend that it's the whole universe, <laughs> we're just gonna ignore all this thing that, in fact, like it's not the whole universe, and we only have some nodes, and it totally is gonna bias our results that not everyone is on MySpace or whatever graph <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> uh, you had, right? And and I think that's also a thing that even now we're not really being fully honest about and part of the reason is because we don't know what the hell to do with it right like like we we know that some nodes are really embedded in our network and we know almost everything about them but then there's a huge set of nodes that's basically the surface the 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 kind of the connection to the outside world that we don't know so much about and all of that you know, we, we just conveniently don't talk so much about. And I think that's also kind of uh, true in, in biological systems where, you know, there's some, some let's say you have like protein-protein interactions and then because of the technology you use to get them out, like there's some of them you can measure very easily and and you have good measurements and then there other ones that are really hard to measure and then they're not in the network and then like, well, okay, like, or whatever it is, right? And I think that's that's like a important kind of, place to begin to go
1: absolutely and in fact uh so there have been studies in terms of who contributes to wikipedia most people who contribute to wikipedia are young western males who have like a bachelor's or a master's and so you're getting a slice of knowledge from that demographics yeah. not from any other demographics and one of the things that they have shown is with these large language models like gpt3 etc cetera, etc cetera, and they can be misogynist and you know, racist, et cetera, et cetera, in part is because they are taking all of this information from Wikipedia and other places and learning these language models, yeah. right? Uh, as opposed to if, for example, uh, Wikipedia had a more representative set of people who contributed to it.
0: Yes. No, no, also that for sure. And like who even generated so, so it's not just who generates the algorithms, which is this—I mean, they have some like a higher academic uh, degree, but it's essentially the same group of people. And then, who generates the the training data? And that is that is yeah, it's a huge kind of open question on what what the hell what the hell do we do with it, right? Because it's not enough. To just go like, oh, we're gonna debias it and make it uh, <laughs> make it fair because you, like, if there's something fundamental missing, how are you gonna get it in there? I think you can't.
1: Yeah, and the the one way of going about this, like, I really like some of the work that Tim, um, Tim Nick Gibru and Margaret Mitchell Meg Mitchell did. They were the co-leads cool of uh, Ethical AI at Google before they got fired. Yeah, was one paper was. Where- data sheets for data sets. And another one was model cards for model reporting. Just be honest, right? Like how the data was collected. These are the pitfalls. This is how it's being maintained. This is why it was collected, because usually data gets reused for other purposes, right? Uh, That wasn't sanctioned. And then with the models also like having Some reporting of how does the model do on this subpopulation versus that subpopulation. Yes. So just being honest that look, this model only works on white men between this much and this much who are in this social economic status. Yeah. I have no problem with that. But I feel like there's this notion of people don't want to be honest. They want to say that my algorithm or my model, whatever, works out for everybody. Yes. Right.
0: No, no, but I think that's that's right. But I think if I'm being honest, that's also what I try and do in my papers. Like I, I try and and say like this is what we found and we think it's amazing. But of course, you know, we think that actually what I try and do and say, I think some these, this aspect is likely to generalize to everyone for this reason. And these aspects are likely to be specific. And of course, we can't know, but this is what we want to, to learn in future studies, right, and that's yeah, that's a it's a good way to make it better.
1: That's great, God bless you. We need more people like you, <laughs> more scholars like you. Who would do that you know, just be honest. Like, look, I trained it on this data. I can only say it works on this data, you know, or this you know data that's close to it or something like that. But yeah, most people aren't
0: honestly. Like no, no, that. but again, it's also because it requires uh, nuance, and nuance is also is a privilege that I have because I'm an old white man. You know what I mean? Like I'm already established. I have benefited from all this structural inequality that's there. And now I'm at a point in my career where I can afford to be a nuance because people will listen. But if you're young or if you're less established or whatever, it's way harder to, to, to kind of be respected to do that. So we should also be aware again about incentives and reward, nuance whenever we find it so it's it's always like yeah you can always (laughs) can always do better i guess all right super good so we have chatted for a little over uh an hour and flew by but uh we shouldn't make it too long so so did, did is there something we forgot or something we should talk about
1: uh no i think we talked about lots of different things this was very nice i enjoyed uh being on your podcast thank you for inviting me
0: of course thank you thank you so much for coming i also really enjoyed it and i hope uh we can have uh, many more uh conversations (laughs) in the future so it was a it was a pleasure and super cool so um yes we are wrapping up the podcast now The podcast was produced and edited by me, Sune. It's partially funded by the Willem Foundation, and the music is by Waylon Thornton. It's some tracks I found at Free Music Archive, and there's also a little bit of music by me. Thanks again.